If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Motorcast. I am your host, Howard H. Smith. You may know me as lead singer with UK thrash band Acid Rain or from my heavy metal uh, podcast, Talking Bollocks. Um, in the podcast description, you'll see my name is highlighted. If you click it there, it'll take you to all the podcasts I've done. But that's enough of that, because here I am your host, your guide through the world of all things Motorhead. And great fun it is too. Welcome back if you're coming back. Welcome for the first time if you've this is the first time you've joined us, please remember to subscribe and please remember to tell friends to subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this, there will be a button that says subscribe. If you click that, it will mean that you get a new episode every fortnight coming into your device. So, what are we up to at the moment? Well, uh, we're about to see the release of the 40th anniversary uh, reissue of No Sleep Till Hammersmith. This is to celebrate the 40th anniversary of probably the greatest live album ever with some amazing deluxe editions. There's going to be hardback book packs in two CD and triple LP formats, plus a deluxe four CD box set, which features all three shows that made the record No Sleep. Uh, they've never been released in their entirety before. Um, there's also a book which is, includes the story of the album, many unseen photos and all sorts of era-specific treasures. Now, to get all the latest information on the podcast, on the reissues and everything, you need to visit imotorhead.com. That is the official Motorhead website, imotorhead.com, for all of your Motorhead information. So... As always, bringing you an exclusive interview, bringing you an interview with somebody who basically never does interviews, because that is kind of what we do on this show. Coming up, you have the amazing Steve Sunderland. Now, Steve operated and ran a company called Audio Lease, who provided PAs for bands. And, well, they provided, yep, Motorhead with PAs from pretty much day one right throughout their career. So, you are hearing stories about volume and sizes of PAs from the man who was responsible for putting these rigs together. So strap yourselves in. You are going to hear some legendary old um, statements about Motorhead's volume and you are going to be listening to the man that can officially confirm or deny how true they are. Anyway, I really enjoyed this. I hope you will too. This is myself and Steve having a chat not long ago. I kind of always start these things out um, the same way and, and this will be no different and it makes a sensible place to start, which is at the beginning. How did you, right. how did you first encounter Motorhead? Uh, I run a sound company, I ran a sound company called Audio Lease um, and we effectively, I think the first tour we did with Motorhead was somewhere in the spring 1979. Um the um uh, it's very interesting because i was going out with a lady that actually was an ex of eddie clark's and she introduced me to uh, to eddie in a pub i seem to remember as as most of these meetings were you know and eddie i remember eddie sitting there saying okay why do you think you should be doing our sound and i said um 
Uh, well, you know, we struggle to do the very best live sound there is, and um, uh, you know we're not happy at, uh, until it's absolutely perfect, and it will yeah. never be perfect. And I did uh, virtually every single. I did the sound for virtually every single Motorhead show, barring festivals in Europe from that moment on. Um, I've also done quite a few American tours with them, um, so you know that's a. A span of a lot of years, right the way through to the end. Wow, that's um, that is that's in, that's incredible, and also just it, it, I mean, in there as somebody you know, somebody who's um, a band in a band himself, uh, the fact that you would do that, you did, you know, you did a couple of US tours as well. That must have been right at the seven, the height of seven. the music business. Yeah, I mean, we did several US tours with Motorhead. Wow. I mean, Motorhead technically, from an audio company point of view. Motorhead were uh, extremely challenging um, because they were so loud. Um, yeah. I mean, the, level, the stage level was incredible. Um, I'm trying to get monitors above that so you know, uh, Lemmy could hear himself sing. Um, was you know, the ultimate audio challenge. I mean, in those days, equipment was nothing like as good as it is now. Um, you know, and we were absolutely pushing the boundaries of, uh, of technology all the time with Motorhead to just try and get that voice, get that voice over, get that kick drum over to the audience. It was, you know, absolutely a challenge. And we, um, uh, you know, we, we, we tried loads of stuff. One of them was out of two out of phase mics were on Lemmy. So, uh, yeah, there was sort of noise cancelling at the vocal microphone. Um, but we, yeah, again, yeah, we were doing yeah, groundbreaking stuff. I mean, Motorhead are the only artists that we've ever worked with where we were metering current um, at the speakers during the show. So we were knowing exactly how much power was going into each, each box at, at all times. The only band I've ever had to do that for. Um, it was, uh, you know, and we, you know, because we were suffering so much in the way of casualty speakers blown. But this was in the days before, you know, sophisticated limiting, sophisticated electronic crossovers. Um, you know, we, we were all pushing boundaries. But, but, but still, were, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, still, the underlying fact is that there's still only three of them. There are only three of them. But the, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the stage um, level was. Yeah, beyond. Uh, yeah. I have never known a band, and I've worked with a lot of heavy metal bands. So I've never known a band that had such an um, incredible stage level. Um, you know, as I say, we had to create our own um, um, uh, sort of um, answers to these questions. I mean, in the yeah. later years, you see the later years of live with Motorhead. What we did, because Lemmy, to, uh, um, you know, more and more didn't like to hear click drum on stage um you know, the uh, you know he was it was uh, but uh, um of course mickey d the drummer you know had to hear <laughs> kick drum on stage yeah. so we had that sort of dichotomy so what we were doing was um what we did is we built a double drum riser for mickey and um put his monitors on that double drum riser so he was above Lem uh, lemmy's ear height um, and that solved loads of problems. You know, it, it meant Mickey could hear what he wanted to hear, and Lemmy didn't hear what he didn't want to hear. Um, wow. It was, it was, yeah, it was very interesting working with uh, 
um, working with those guys. But I mean, on a, on a, on a personal level, it was, I mean, yeah, I mean, crazy rock and roll doesn't come into it. Does not come into it. The, um, uh, you know, particularly that early lineup was just, you know, excess <laughs> after excess after excess. It was. Um, um, yeah. I've heard some. I've heard some pretty crazy stories about those. Um, uh, about that original. Uh, well, not original lineup, but that that first sort of solid lineup. Um, uh, that you know that did the first four albums and and just you know they they got they got into a few scrapes. Let's put it that way. They did indeed. I mean, you've been told the story of um, uh, um, uh, of of. of uh, the drummer with the broken neck in Belfast, <laughs> not even knowing it. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, but uh, it was. There was an awful lot of um, of booze and other stuff flying around, to say the least. I mean, I, I remember the the, uh, the 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 last tour that Eddie Clark did. Um, the um, um, you know, I was we were kicking off the UK tour was kicking off in Aberdeen, and I always used to go to the first show of the couple of shows just to make sure we were doing what we could and there were no problems. And I was flying up to Aberdeen and I got a call um, uh, literally first thing in the morning from the manager at the time, Doug Smith, saying, um, "Can you? Eddie's going to be on that plane with you. Can you look after him and get him to the venue? And, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, so, you know, I'm standing there waiting for the Aberdeen flight and then Eddie comes in with, a, with his head bandaged to, to the max, you know, just about able to see. He'd come straight out of um, that Charing Cross casualty, and um, he was absolutely cursing and swearing because he um, he got 17 stitches in his head, and he and his then girlfriend Sylvia had had a fight in the middle of the night the night before, and there were two bottles, two vodka bottles there. One was empty, and the other one was full. And she'd picked up the full vodka bottle and broken it over his head. And he could not actually get his head around the fact that she had broken the full vodka bottle and not the empty bottle of vodka <laughs> bottle. You know, he didn't care about his head. He just cared. It was the only alcohol in the house. And the stupid girl had broken over his head, you know. <laughs> so he's not bothered about having a head full of stitches. He's bothered about a wasted bottle of vodka. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, what was the? Um, uh, I mean, obviously, you had quite a few. You know, your init- initially your dealings were with with, with Eddie. Um, when did you uh, first kind of you know meet Lemmy? And well, it and- was all at the same time. Everybody, everybody was sort of socialising and um, um, uh, you know as, as working and socialising together. It was all sort of West London based, West Kent. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a flat down there that I, uh, um, Eddie had, and I think he shared it with Phil for a while. I think Lenny was living around the corner, but um, uh, Lenny used to go and drink at the Princess Alexandra, which is up in, uh, uh, I think, just off Portobello Road, the other side of the park. Um, yeah. Uh, um, you know, that, well, because Lenny, even at that time, was um, um, uh, you know, wedded to fruit machines. Uh, I mean, in later years, we used to tour a fruit machine. We had a, a fruit machine. Not, not only did we have a fruit machine on the road that was set up in the dressing room every night for Levy, um, but we also had a, a comprehensive list of um, fruit machine technicians in every town in Europe. So uh, when this machine went wrong, we had somebody that could come and repair it. <laughs> how, how does how does a fruit machine become become part of the uh, the PA providers remit? Well, it was actually it was not. It was 
luckily it was not under my remit. Um, you know, this was under the production remit. Right. Um, so, you know, I never got involved in it. I just saw this machine coming into the dressing room, getting set up, and, <laughs> and people going through a little black book of, of repairers when the machine went wrong. That's incredible. But, um, yeah, I know. I mean, Lemmy would never be, you know, never wanted to be more than you know, 50 feet from a, from a fruit machine. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a years back, uh, well, I say years back, you know, later years of the band, um, Lemmy moved to, moved to California at that time. And um, he's, uh, you know, as I say, I got very close to Lemmy. I would, call, I would call him a very, very, very good friend of mine. He was an incredible guy, Lemmy. He was absolutely unique, one of a kind. Um, the um, but I got a call from well, I was having several conversations with management uh, out there, and they said um, they said the manager said um, he said we got a problem with Lemmy. He just come back off to a European tour, I think. They said um, he's he's got he's he's got, he's got a, a big, big toe. The next toe gone black. Gone to the doctor. The doctor said it's diabetes. Uh, there's no circulation. He said the. Toes will have to come off, and then it'll be the foot, and then it'll be the lower leg. And, um, you know, um, uh, the, uh, um, and the bill was okay, like $800,000, and of course, Lem had no medical insurance at that time. So I, I said to I lived in a village, I lived in a village in Suffolk, 150 people, middle of nowhere, uh, but I had a neighbour who was a really, really good friend who was a GP. Uh, so I spoke to him, and he said, get the guy over here. Um, so I spoke to the manager and said, get Lemmy on a plane over here. So Lemmy and Dave Hilton, who was the sound engineer and tour manager at the time, came over, came straight up to my house, um, you know, off the plane, up to my house, had Sunday lunch. And then we got the, um, uh, I called Neville, and Neville came over, took took over my um, uh, my dining, my, my living room as a consultancy, uh, as, a, as a surgery. Yeah. Called his mate who actually lived in Sudbury, which is not very far. He was a plastic surgeon, and he came over. Um, yeah, they looked at that for me, um, and uh, they said, "Okay, we want you in the um, private hospital in Barris and Edmonds tomorrow." Um, so they basically—that's exactly what happened. They got Lemmy admitted. They stabilised his diabetes. Um, they um, no amputations. Um, uh, you know, they got him. They got him back stable. They, uh, I think there was a, there was a heart murmur which they sorted, and um, you know he was in Berry for a while. And the, the funny thing is, the first thing he did when they walked into um, uh, Berry Hospital, the, the private hospital, is they said no alcohol, and then he said, "No, I'm leaving." Then, <laughs> <laughs> so the compromise was uh, they would let him drink rosé wine. But the only wine that uh, Lemmy would drink was uh, uh, Matthias Rosé, that Portuguese wine that you drink as a student. Yeah. Um, you know, it would only just come back on the market, and it was only available in uh, 500 centilitre bottles. So uh, my wife was out there several days a week buying carrier bag after carrier bag of Matthias Rosé. <laughs> Dear me. <laughs> So, I mean, for medical reasons, Lemmy was registered at my house, which is why he never spent a night there. But um, um, while you know, while this was going on, when he came out of hospital, he was at the Holiday Inn um, at uh, in Cambridge because it was next is one of the nicest hotels in Cambridge, but it's also right alongside a Witherspoons, which had a nice fruit machine. So Lemmy was out there every night on the fruit machine. 
I mean, Lemmy would always, you know, never ever needed a um, um, uh, a minder. You know, you needn't worry about Lemmy. Always you know, went out on his own. However much he drunk, he always got home. I mean, in, my, in all my years with Motorhead, I've probably seen Lemmy drunk twice. Um, uh, absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible. He was a fantastic man, Howard. Absolutely. I mean, he just—he's one of those guys that just. Uh, you know, he couldn't abide fools. Um, you know, people that put on airs and graces and pretend yeah. to be something they weren't. If you were absolutely honest and genuine with them, he was honest and genuine with you. Um, and he always cut to the quick. Always, always, always cut to the quick. Um, um, you know, we shared an interest. I don't know if people don't know it, but Lemmy was a, was an avid collector of uh, Nazi memorabilia, yeah. and also an incredible reader. Um, yeah. I mean, and I, I read a lot of Second World War history, and we always used to read the same stuff. But Lemmy always said to me, "Don't lend me a book if you've got a good book and you don't mind losing it. I'd love to read it, but I can never guarantee getting it back to you because I live in California." Um, but I mean, he, his knowledge was utterly fantastic, and there is—I never had it confirmed, but um, I have been told that at one point he went out and did a, a lecture tour around, around American University on uh, German military history in the Second World War. Wow! Uh, I mean, he's, you know, his knowledge was incredible, and he's flat. I mean, last time I went to a good, a good few years ago now. You couldn't actually get in the door um, because of the memorabilia. I said, Sammy, where did you get this stuff? You're sitting in California. He said, if you want to collect this stuff, America is supposed to be because yeah. all the GIs bought it home after the Second World War. Yes. Yeah, and he's got swords and he's got crosses and he's got medals. and he's, I mean, just yeah, literally. And the funny thing is that when he... He moved because he, he was always closer to the whiskey. He was you know, his first apartment was pretty close, and then he got another apartment. Um, and the people told me that the reason he got the second apartment is because he actually couldn't get in the first apartment for all the memorabilia. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But um, no, he was very. I mean, well, something. Very, very, Sorry, very I was unique. Yeah, I... Uh, I mean, it's the only outfit I've ever worked with where. You get um, the, the super, these super fans, and um, you know basically, normally with a major artist, uh, backstage passes are gold dust, and they're only given to professionals, people that are working closely with the band or the artists themselves. And um, uh, but Motorhead had this group of super fans. They were guys normally on their own um, who were absolute fans, and they would get all access passes. Uh, well, can't be many of them, maybe half a dozen at most, maybe a few more. But the, So these guys had absolute access backstage, on stage, never got in the way, never were in a, pro, in a place where they shouldn't be. They were, you know, absolute, uh, you know, diamonds, basically. You know, they were, they were, and I've never known another act do this, you know. And, uh, and the fans respected the position by never doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing or being somewhere where they shouldn't be. It was, you know, which is the main idea of backstage passes. You know, yes. um, you know, it's to keep out, keep away people that just don't know how to behave on stage or backstage. Yeah. You know, people that go, are acting inappropriately. I've never known another band do it. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's funny you should but say no, that because I, I think, yeah. I think I've had um, uh, one, one of those fans at least um, on the podcast already. 
it, it comes back to something that we were saying when we when we had our call a couple of days ago that um, it didn't matter who you were, whether you were a fan or you worked for the audio company or whoever you were. If if Lemmy sort of took a shine to you, as it were, you know, and sort of let let you in, that that was it. That was the state of yeah. affairs forever, as far as he was concerned. You, once you were once you were family, you were always family. Um, you'd have to do something really, really, really catastrophically bad to um, you know to, to not be family anymore. Um, you know, once you were you know there, there were once you were uh, through those doors. You were part of the family, and that was it. Um, and it was very much, I mean, the crew were all part of the family, very, very much so. Um, and I was privileged enough to be, um, you know, and a few others. And that was it, really. Um, but um, it was a complete, complete unique situation. Out. I mean, it was absolutely devastating when I heard Lemmy had died. Absolutely. But, I mean, all three of them are gone now. I mean, Eddie yeah. Clark I kept in touch with. He was a very good friend of mine right the way through to the end. Um, you know, Phil that got, was, you know, was spent a long time in America and had a stroke and was never quite the same again. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it was, you know, I heard Overkill on the radio the other day and thought, my God, all these three are gone now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you were, did you, did you ever did you ever talk about the old Motorhead days with um, with with Eddie? Um, you oh know? God, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we would be, um, um, uh, you know, we we we'd chat a lot about the old days. The um, uh, I mean, you know, it, it was such an explosive relationship with Eddie and the band at that time. Well, everybody in that band, but. Um, um, there was a, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Eddie Ellis tells a story. He was, uh, there was a security guy on the road called Mick Murphy, employed by management, who went on to do all sorts of stuff. He was with, with Susie and the Banshees for a long time as well, Mick Murphy. And, um, um, Eddie had had this drunk of fights and said, I'm quitting, I'm quitting. This is long before he quit. <laughs> and um, so he went and crashed out in, in, um, um, and uh, he woke up in the morning and the, the, he, the band were due in Scandinavia, I think. And um, um, Eddie says, <laughs> waking up in the morning, bleary, bleary, bleary eyed. And uh, there was Mick Murphy sitting on his bed. Mick was a big guy. So Eddie, uh, Mick was saying, Eddie, you and I are flying to Scandinavia now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, It was very, very much unique. The whole thing was was absolutely unique. Of course, the music was unique. Those those first albums, you know, with the original lineup, I still think are fantastic. I think I told you the other day, I I also like Perfect Day, which is the Brian Robertson album. Um, You know, there's a lot of very good songs on Perfect Day. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot an, of... Underrated album. I yeah. mean, Brian Robertson, was, it was, you know, it just didn't work really uh, um, in the long term. But, I mean, they produced that fantastic album. Fantastic album. Yeah. Um, and, um, of course, it, you know, though Lemmy was very instrumental, you know, in, um, uh, informative. The other thing that people don't know is that Lemmy always split the publishing three, um, three ways, or four ways, when there was a four-piece. Four um, you know, there was never a songwriter with Motorhead. Everybody was credited with everything. Yeah. Um, so it meant that the earnings were absolutely equal. It's all very, very, you know, there are very few bands to do that. 
it's a very, very it's a very though. simple way of uh, of actually cementing a lineup because ultimately thing you know things like songwriting credits um can can eat away at a band because ultimately yep. it, it's money and being in a band is your job and it's money and it's ego yeah yeah uh, you know, well uh, yeah yeah you're right it's ego as, as well as, most, as far as Lemmy, i mean Lemmy never cared about money he did not care about yeah I've, money. I've got that from a lot um, of people he's he, he, uh, he never bought he never bought a property did he he always he rented never. He said to me, I said, why don't you buy them? He said, oh, I can't afford to buy. <laughs> uh, never bought a property. Never, ever bought a property. Um, you know, to say he had two flats in Los Angeles, both at the end there, both rented. Um, but, uh, you know, one was there as a storage for Nazi memorabilia. But do you think it was the sort of the concept of if you bought somewhere, you were tied down in some way? I don't think so. I think he was, um, you know, he just didn't care. It was not, um, you <laughs> know, provided he had a place to lay his head, provided he could pay his rent. Um, you know, he just wasn't, he just, he, money just didn't, was not part of his, his thing at all. Just not interested in money, let me, um, you know, provided he, you know, he could actually you know, get a, Buy him, buy himself a drink. You know, um, he was absolutely happy. I mean, there's another funny story about Lenny and drink. We were doing a. He was stuck in London, um, and trying to get back into America. And the, the visa was taking a while, and he was at the Royal Garden Hotel, which is his London, you know, where he used to stay in London. And I, we had what they call the Live Awards, which is the it's the technical. Um, uh, presentation from Live Magazine, which was the you know the the, the magazine for the for the tech for technicians and the, and the and the supply companies and production companies. Yeah, and they had, they do still have a big dinner every year, um, and they give awards. Um, you know, the best production manager, the best sound engineer, the best lighting designer, the best uh, set design, and um, the. Um, um, and they, they, I, I knew the editor at that time quite well. And he said, I, "We need someone really good to prevent, you know, pretty famous to prevent the um, um, the uh, stage set of the year award." And I said, "Well, Lemmy's in London. He's kicking around doing nothing. I'll ask him." They said, "Well, we can't afford to pay him much." I phoned Lemmy and said, "Hey, then, do you want to come down to um, to this uh, and, uh, this this, stage, this this function and um, present an award?" And he said. Uh, yeah, they'll have to pay me in Jack Daniels, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, the uh, so you know we were there. We were drinking. Then he was drinking Jack, and then the editor came up and made a big point of putting a bottle of Jack Daniels in front of Lemmy, a normal you know seventy centimetre bottle. And uh, then he picked up the bottle, looked at it, looked at the editor, looked back at the bottle, looked at the editor, and the. Um, and then and, and the penny drops. So the guy scuttled off, came back with another four bottles of Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> and when the award was, um, you know, when we, when it was announced, I think it was, and I can't remember who the set designer was. Um, um, I can't remember his name, but the the the, the artist was Kylie Minogue. And um, uh, when Lemmy learned, he was going to give the award to the. Carly Minogue stage. He said, Carly Minogue can't give her an award. She's got no tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did like his, his large breasted women. I mean, <laughs> but he was, I mean, he was, 
he was an absolute gentleman when it came to ladies. He really was. I yeah. mean, there was obviously a, a lot of them, but he was, you know, he always behaved impeccably around women. Um, Louise said that when she dropped off, would be dropping off wine to his hotel room in Cambridge, he would never let her in the room. You know, he would not, would not be seen to be... Um, um, you know, in, in the room alone with uh, somebody yeah. else's wife. Um, you know, it was just a, um, uh, that's the way he was. He was very, very incredible gentleman, really incredible gentleman. Well, he always, um, yeah, he was always, surely missed. Oh, big time, big time. And he was always a big champion of women as well. You know, obviously, oh, gotcha. girls' school and, 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 you know, and working with women and, uh, and, and taking, um, female bands on tour. And, I mean, Yep, you know, this absolutely. is this is. I mean, this is back in the day as well, when, you know, when there there wasn't many around. No, no. Um, funny enough, on a different note altogether, I just uh, there's a a friend of mine called Tyler Douglas who is just published a book as the first female roadie. Um, uh, she, she used to work with AC, she used to work with everybody ACDC, Quo, um, um, yeah, the whole nine yards, um, right. uh, and. Um, uh, I, I did her first tour over here. Great to work with. Great to work with. But and, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, Lemmy was, and funnily enough, we had a, um, um, you know, we took one of one of our technicians on the road that on the on the last European tour was was a girl. Um, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't. It was certainly mo- mo- working on, uh, as part of a crew with Motorhead was not was certainly not a, not a scary experience if you're a girl. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and speaking of being on the road, I mean, I'm presuming that. Well, I know you did. You did the. Um, you did. You did the sound for the legendary. Uh, the legendary tour that ended up being No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Yes, yes, I think that was our second tour. Um, the um, maybe it's the second. Tour. Yeah, that was crazy. Six nights sold out at Hammersmith. And do you... and interest, interestingly enough, the. Um, um, there was a bust. The police raided the whole thing uh, backstage, <laughs> and um, uh, we—I was a very odd situation because the um, um, uh, the as we were coming up to Hammersmith, I was renting. You know, there was a company we used to use renting um, uh, vans called Havervan out in Rickmansford. Uh, Havervan had a few cars, you know, there's something like three Ford Escorts and a Cortina Estate. And I was renting a uh, one of their escorts, Ford Escorts, and one of the management people, the production guy in the management office, was short of a car, so he was renting one as well. So we were both renting cars from this car company, Havervan, about three days before the Hammersmith shows. I got a call from the guy that owned it and said, what have you guys been up to? I said, well, you've been up to nothing. He said, well, those two cars have been seen together um, by the police outside a bank in East London. Uh, no, they haven't. The office was in West London. The only time they'd have been seen together is outside the management office. And I put, thought about it and thought about it, and I phoned management and said, listen, you're under police surveillance. They'd noticed my car or my rental car and Dave Gilligan's rental car together, and the only place they've been together is outside your office. No, 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 there's no problem. You're just making this up. No, there is going to be an issue. There is an issue. You're under surveillance. And then, lo and behold, come one of the Hammersmith shows, um, 
there were all these people backstage wearing motorhead t-shirts uh, that turned out to be undercover police really you know, grabbed everybody yeah absolutely i mean well i think they found next to nothing i think one of my guys got caught with a joint or something um but uh, you know they searched everybody they looked everywhere um, I don't think any of the band got involved, um, but uh, you know, certainly everybody was searched and everything was searched. This whole team of people of, of undercover police in motorhead t-shirts—it was quite hilarious, really. Do you think that uh, was something uh, to do with the with the sort of connections with Hell's Angels? I don't think so. I think you know, motorhead had a reputation of being you know a, a band that took uh, loads of drugs and the. Um, um, uh, and the police had decided to put resources into it. Because as I say, came down and busted us all at Hammersmith. Well, I wasn't there when they actually did it. Um, but, um, yeah, as I say, they found nothing of any consequence. Um, you know, they thought we were going to have, you know, this major dealing scenario, and of course there wasn't. Well, you um, must... And, and that tour as well, obviously not just Hammersmith, but finishing up there, but you, you'd have had the lovely Leeds-Queens Hall to deal with on that tour as well. We did, yeah. I didn't. I don't think I did Leeds Queen Hall myself. I remember. I remember it from other other bands. I seem to remember it not being the best acoustics in the world, to say the least. Oh yeah, it was. It was like an old bus station. It was horrendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But talking of Hell's Angels, we had a hilarious situation probably the summer after that tour, where uh, you know Lemmy was always associated with the Angels. Um, yeah, they, so anyway, Douglas said to me, he said, uh, the manager said, uh, look, we've got to do this festival. Um, the, uh, you know, we've got to do it for free because we're getting pressurized into it. But, um, um, the, um, you know, yeah, you go in there, char- you know, do the sound as, as per normal, charging all commercial rates. And of course, the Hells Angels at that time were, you know, considered well beyond the pale, but they'd set me up a meeting at, um, at a promoter's office and, these guys came and picked me up, took me in. Now, funny enough, I'd just been to the bank, so I was in a suit. I've got all these Hells Angels, and I'm doing a site visit in a suit. Oh, dear. <laughs> and um, the, um, um, but the, 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 an interesting Saxon were uh, special guests. And, uh, oh, who, who, sorry, Saxon? Saxon were special guests. And, uh, the, um, and the manager of Saxon was a guy called Nigel Thomas, who... From the landed gentry out in Oxfordshire, um, owns most of Stone in the world, and the family did. And he was managing Saxon, and um, the um, um, they were recording Saxon, and um, he hadn't given any authorization for recording, and he was trying to throw his weight around. And that doesn't really work at the Hell's Angels Festival. I did remember them escorting him off site. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, yeah, it was quite interesting. We, I think the, the following year we did the Bingley Hall show. Um, oh, that's legendary. Up in Stafford, yeah. I mean, it was, I can't remember how many are in, a lot, 16,000 or something. Um, again, not best acoustics in the world, but the idea was to try and fly this um, a bomber on a wire, on a zip wire, from one end of the venue to, onto stage. Um, but... Uh, um, it all went wrong, you know, it didn't inflate properly, so it looked like a sort of pregnant duck. And it was being pulled across very, very slowly, just as the um just as the encore finished and the band walked off stage. <laughs> 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 I 
nobody saw it anyway. The following year, was, of course, we did the, um, uh, the Port Vale Outdoor with um, Ozzy Osbourne and um, special guesting. We assembled probably the biggest physical PA that's ever been assembled in Europe. Um, it was uh, um, on th- each side of the stage with three tiers, uh, each 60 foot long, each filled, so um, yeah, six times 60 feet wide of PA, wow. plus an info going right the way under the stage. I mean, it was, it was so loud that when you turned it up at the... Um, at the mixer, you could not look at the stage because the bottom end was moving your eyes and out of focus. Um, <laughs> we were getting noise complaints from six miles away. Um, wow, that's, that's, that's got to be that's got to be a badge of honour, surely. Well, funnily enough, we were going to be in the Guinness Book of Records with it. Um, you know, that's, a, that's a fantastic picture, um, which I'll try and send you. Actually, um, the um, um, but the. Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was a sort of five-day build for us. It was an awful lot of work. It was, it was phenomenal. And again, you know, the finale was going to be these skydivers parachuting in with flares on their heels. Um, but uh, again, the timing went wrong, and the skydivers came in about two minutes late after the band had walked off stage. Oh dear! <laughs> oh dear! I, I mean, I've just got to. I've just got to pick you up on something there are you saying that you had a five day build just of a PA yeah well the whole well, uh, PA um, and the lights yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah but that's I mean, we, yeah, we involved is... we involved most sound companies in the UK we were pulling in sub gear from all everybody Absolutely well, everybody had compatible equipment. Well, it's definitely stuck in people's minds because the, the subject of Bingley Hall has come up a few times um, on, on episodes. And, um, and the PA always gets a mention for A, being massive and B, being loud. So people still remember it to this day, Steve. So it was definitely, well, yeah, you know, you definitely pulled something off. Bingley Hall, but I'll, I'll send you, I'll email you a picture of, the, um, uh, of Port Vale. It was absolutely incredible. Oh, well, and I will the, do. I'd love to see that. And the promoter was the legendary John Curd, if that's come up in conversation. Um, I mean, John Curd was one of those maverick um, um, promoters from that era, and he helped break Motorhead, but he also broke people like you too, um, uh, Blondie. Um, You know, he had this ear for bands that nobody had really heard of um, and just ran with it. Um, you know, he took you two from a club band to, um, you know, to an arena band, um, yeah, and same with Blondie. You know, nobody's ever heard of this funny little girl from America. Um, you know, before John Kerr got hold of her, um, you know, amazingly foresighted. And as I say, he broke. Um, uh, he well, he you know, he was part of the of, of the operation that broke Motorhead. You know, so everybody's going, Christ, this is, you know, this isn't music. This is, you know, <laughs> and you look at it, John Curl said, yep, right, let's book five nights at Hammersmith. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. And and something that is, something that, that has sort of run through a, a theme of people I've spoken to as well is the fact that, um, the fact that you were in there 
um, from such early doors, but all the way through. And it would, yep. and, and again, you know, when he was saying about Lemmy as a person, that once you were, you know, once you were in his inner circle, you were in. It seems like also, if you know, if you were, if you were good at what you do, and you know, you 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 did right by them, that was it. You were, you were, that you know, was, you that were... was it. You had to be good at your job. Um, yes. you, know, you needed to be because I mean, a motorhead have always been the ultimate professional crew. If you weren't a professional on that crew, you never did a second tour. Um, you know, and that was that went right the way through. I mean, even down to the caterers. I mean, um, the uh, uh, there, there was you know, in recent years in Europe, it's been a small company, Sugar and Spice, who are fantastic, brilliant caterers. Um, and Richie Duncan, who's the, the chef, used to personally sort Lemmy's meal out and take it into the dressing room for him. Um, the uh, and Richie, you know, amazing cook, amazing cook. Um, uh, the um, um, you know, but used to you know, used to just just take care of Lemmy basically as part of his job. Yeah. Interesting, he um, he would actually sit. You know, and you're feeding quite a lot of people. You're feeding I don't know, thirty or forty people on a motel tour, and the uh, uh, so you're setting up the catering backstage, so, and at dinner time he would uh, he would sit by the rubbish bin, and um, you know if you threw away your greens or if you threw he'd, he'd berate you. Why didn't you eat that? Why did you take that if you weren't <laughs> going to eat it? <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> Brilliant. But, um, no, it's, uh, yeah, very very unique times, Howard. Very very unique times. Yeah. So I'm, I'm privileged to have been a part of it. I really am. Yeah, yeah. And to and to be working with them for to be working with them for so long to 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 have done so many tours, um, you know they, it, you know we've been saying like you were in with them, but they they must have been they must have been a, a delight to work with. They were. I mean, sometimes you know, like everything else, it was yeah, it was very high tension. There could be moments of um, uh, 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 moments of screaming matches. Although I very rarely had any with the band. Um, but yeah, I can't remember ever having. Well, I can remember once having. Um, um, I can't remember what it was over. You know, um, Lemmy storming off, um, and um, I can't remember what it was about. Um, but yeah, but there you go. That I think that that says it all, though, doesn't it? You can't even yeah. remember what it was about. It was so. You know, it obviously wasn't that significant. It was not that significant. I'm forgotten the next day. But, yeah. Um, no, it was as I say, very, very, very unique days. The, um, but again, going back to that last tour, I think Eddie Clark did. The um, um, you know we flew up to Aberdeen together, and we, we were all staying in the one hotel. Um, Holiday in Express, that but Holiday in by the airport. But anyway, the hotel was pretty built for pretty full, and um, I went back to the uh, you know Eddie and I came back from the venue together. Uh, uh, I was sharing a room, which good, but um, the hotel was full, so I, I was sharing a twin with uh, the LV, and uh, the um, uh, Eddie went up to take his bags upstairs and come back down with the only cat at the party. He said, "There's a naked girl in my bed, and I don't really want to know." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then, no, there were two others hanging around as well. So um, the um, <laughs> no, you see, normally what I'd have done, and I've done before, is just swap room keys. So he takes my room, I take his, and the girl in the bed realises that it's not that I'm not the musician, and they just get up and go. Um, 
But you, I couldn't do that because we had, I was sharing a room. So um, Eddie and I got into a backgammon tournament. He was a wicked backgammon player, a great backgammon player. Wow. I, I, at that time, I was playing a lot of backgammon, and we just just went for it. You know, we were playing in the bar, and then we took the ball upstairs, and there's this girl in the bed. Um, um, you know, and we're just sitting at the table playing round after round after round of backgammon, drinking huge amounts of Jack Daniels, and. Um, <laughs> If, if there's two other girls knocking at the door, I go to the door and say, "Look, we're in a business meeting. Go away." Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's something, there's something strangely rock and roll about turn it, turning girls away at the hotel room door so you can carry on playing backgammon. Well, that was it. That was the truth. That's exactly what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, because she didn't want to know. I didn't want to know. I was married at that stage. The um, and. Uh, the, um, eventually, the girl in the bed decided that um, um, you know, uh, Eddie and I were gay, so she got up, stark naked, in a half, got dressed, and stormed off. At <laughs> <laughs> so that point, I said, "Eddie, you can go to bed now. I'm going to my room." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Look, I, I I can't thank you enough. It's been it, it's been it's been great hearing all these uh, hearing all these stories of you know. From from years ago, I, it, it's fantastic. I really do appreciate you taking the time, Steve. Really do. Uh, not on just on my own behalf, but on the behalf of everybody listening as well. All of these, all of these stories, all of this sort of backstory and behind the scenes stuff is is great, and it's what it's what people want to hear. And we're just trying to sort of preserve the the Motorhead memory, the Motorhead legacy, if you like. And um, well, the and thing thank about you very it, much for being part of it. All this is true. You know, it's not. You know, they weren't. They were. A- Great, great band to work with. I mean, you know, there were individuals there that used to, you know, could be a pain in the ass at times. But, you know, overall, the atmosphere was incredible with Motorhead. Um, you know, it was a, this, it was a, a club that was, um, you know, with a very, very unique membership. And it was, you know, as you say, the only, as I said, the only, the only requirement of the club was not to be an arsehole and to be very good at your job. Um, you know, and that went right the way through from Lemmy downwards. Um, you know, that's it. It's understandable. Well, look, Steve, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, mate. You're very welcome. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. And as you all know, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I did doing it. Absolutely fascinating. It's great listening to all of these stories, getting all of the information from the people that were there, the people that can actually confirm and deny some of these, you know, legends, some of these rumours, these myths, and we get to the bottom of it and find out how true they are. And when it comes to Motorhead and volume, pretty much everything seems to be true. Um, look, thank you very much for uh, for listening in. Thank you for being a subscriber. If you're not a subscriber, find that button, click subscribe, and we will be in your ears every two weeks with a new episode. I'm really, really loving doing these, helping keeping the the, the myth of Motorhead alive and, and, and kind of getting under the skin of some of these stories and, and like we said, speaking to the people who are actually involved. I really hope you're enjoying it. If you are, please do tell your friends. In fact, tell anybody. You don't have to know them. Just tell anybody that, that you come across you need to listen to the Motorcast and just tell them how to subscribe because you definitely know how to do that because I've been going on about it all the way through this episode. 
thanks again for listening. It's great fun. We'll be back at you with another episode in just two weeks. It'll seem like ages, won't it? But your favourite podcast will be back in two weeks with another episode of The Motorcast. I don't say agreed. The only gun I need is the ace of spades. The ace of spades.